out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastorm. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn from the band Green on Red, because I spoke to Chris Kakavas very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry. So this is the interview, which, um, yes, after several slightly tricky moments on Zoom, we had to convert to Skype. I know, it's fascinating. We got down to the interview. But just to say that Chris has also got a prolific um, solo career. Well, quite prolific. And uh, you can find more information about that on his Bandcamp page and various other sites. So do do check that out, because we do talk about that later as well. But... Obviously, a lot about this is about green on red as well. But to kick, to get the ball rolling, so to speak, we get down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Chris, it's over to you. I have to say we are very aligned uh, with the David Bowie reference. Um, I had two older siblings and one younger sibling who was your age, as we talked about earlier. Mm. Um, my brother and sister, my older sister and brother were listening to the temptations. They were listening to Janis Joplin. They were listening. My, my father was listening to, uh, who was he listening to? My mother was listening to David, uh, sorry, Bob Dylan and the band. And so there were quite quite some musical influences happening at that time. Uh, the Beatles, of course, Rolling Stones. Actually, the one Rolling Stone record that we owned at that time when I was maybe 12 or 13 was uh, their Satanic Majesty's Request. Right. Which, These... which I have to say is still my favorite Rolling Stones record. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's like... But that's not the Rolling Stones. I don't care. It's a fucking great record, you know. <laughs> uh, so, and but I think the one of the most, yeah, Sergeant Pepper's was kind of blew me away. Um, I remember listening to "She's Leaving Home." I yes. think that's the title of the song. Well, it's interesting because I got I had a brother who was seven years older than me. So yeah. in that period, he he'd sort of. He's a musical awakening that happened. I mean, I was quite young still in, you know, the early 70s. But he, he brought home, you know, like, I suppose there was Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road and also the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's album. And, um, you know, at the time, there was no kind of great cultural thing about the Beatles. I mean, obviously, they had been very important, but they'd just broken up. And I suppose they'd only been broken up three years ago. But they'd already felt like a very yesterday's band in a lot of ways. But I remember on yeah. side two, there was this great track called Good Morning, which was quite extraordinary. And um, it always blew me away. But I do remember She's Leaving Home because it has such a melancholic quality to it, doesn't it? Oh, you've gone. Oh, no, I'm here. I'm here. Yes. Sorry. So I was just saying about the, the She's Leaving Home. It, the, lyrically, it has such a melancholic vibe to it, doesn't it? Well, uh, what I was going to say is uh, I was listening to it shortly after my sister left home in a rather dramatic and, and kind of traumatic way. 
basically jumped out jumped out of the window of her bedroom literally smashed through the glass and probably about 16 17 at the time and uh hanging out with bikers already and things were going pretty south you know my parents were about to divorce and uh it was a crazy time and i was very young and I remember listening to that song, obviously from a from a from a record, from vinyl, with my Radio Shack headphones, these fat brown vinyl Radio Shack headphones, and it was the first song I remember ever bringing me to tears. You know, uh, that's the first time that I the power that music has over emotions, you know, or how it, how it can bind with your emotions, so to say. And uh, that was a very, I don't know, I don't want to say pivotal moment. Pivotal kind of, for me, implies that I already had a plan, and I certainly had no plan. I was just taking... Um... Yeah, so that that was definitely the first song that ever made me that brought me to tears as much as I I remember. But one of the records that made the biggest impact on me at that time, around the same time, was uh, the Velvet Underground's "White Light," uh, which was also uh, one of the records from my older brother and sister. You know. Yes. And when I heard when I first heard the song "White Light, White Heat." I, I I didn't even know what to think, you know. Um, I thought this is like music from another planet, you know. It uh, it was. I mean, growing up in Tucson, Arizona, it was I lived escape anyway. Um, but luckily, I was surrounded by impossibly great music. Because it could have gone, you know, it could have gone so many directions at that time. But when I heard White Light, White Heat, I was like, this is impossibly good. It just moved me. And and I could not stop listening to that song. Mostly only that song and over and over and over. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's like, <clears throat> you know, if somebody were to, <laughs> if I were to go to a therapist and they would say, where did it all begin? I probably have to say, well, it began with white light, white heat. Yes. But you, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm like, listen to the song and you know what I'm talking about. Yes. And I know that um, a few years, well, probably a decade now, David Bowie brought out an album, the BBC Sessions, and he does a great version of white height, white height. White light, white heat, doesn't he? But going back, because it's a bit of a traumatic story you have about your sister, 16, hanging out of a, of a bedroom window by her fingers jumping off and riding into the sunset or hell, really. depends if it's more of a Bruce Springsteen or Meatloaf, Jim Steinman sort of song. Did, did it kind of end kind of well with your sister in the end or did it sort of, you know, just it's just kind of a, a you know, it's quite a dramatic kind of picture I have in my brain at the moment. Well, um, at that time, I was too young, really, to understand everything that was happening. Um, and I can only put the pieces together in retrospect. Um, but like I say, she was going to high school and she 
let's say she fell in with the wrong crowd or whatever. And um, uh, so basically after, after that happened, she's put into a halfway house where, you know, a, a home for troubled kids. And, uh, and the bottom line is that did not end well at all. Um, I'll get back to that. But all this was happening at around the time that my parents were about to separate. And then my older brother was about to join the army and, and leave the country. Um, so suddenly we had a family that, I don't know, was as happy as any family or, or as unhappy as any other family, but suddenly it, it splintered, but in a, in a, just like in a heartbeat, like everything was gone, you know, sister's out of the house. She's in a halfway house. Suddenly my father's moving out. Uh, my brother goes to Germany, you know, now I'm, I'm the, the oldest uh, in quotation marks, man in the house, you know, Yes. and I had no idea what was really going on. And, uh, really it was kind of like, uh, the floor is just, um, uh, I don't know. I don't want to make it too dramatic. And I, cause I know it's, it's, uh, something that so many young men and women went through at that time. And it happens to this day. But, uh, and I can't say at the time it wasn't traumatic because I didn't even know what is traumatic. Is this traumatic? Mm. I was just like, it's kind of more like, what the fuck is going on? And, you know, how do I, what's my next step? You know what I mean? Yes. But... You know, that my mother goes into kind of a deep depression. Uh, but I have to say, don't get me wrong. All in all, I had a fucking great childhood. <laughs> Well, I have to say, I mean, you know, most people start telling you about their childhood. Well, you know, I don't know. It's one of those ones, isn't it? At the moment. Well, not at the moment, but I I just know that a lot of people keep going back to their childhood because things haven't worked out well in later life. So there's a little bit of a, for various reasons, and some are very right. And sometimes people, I think, um, you know, have, have used it as an excuse for everything that's happened ever since. So it's, uh, you know, I, I don't, dis, you know, I wouldn't say, you know, I think it's kind of those that those formative years are incredibly important. It gives some people a lot of security and some people it gives them incredible insecurity, which sort of affects everything that goes on with them until, you know, death, I suppose. But um, yeah, 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 yeah. David, David, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, I, I can definitely agree with what you're saying. And uh, the thing for me is I generally I generally try not to live too much in the past. I try not to be too nostalgic. Um, I don't want to uh, I know it's important to acknowledge my past and my legacy and uh, to to be happy or to to simply, yeah, just acknowledge uh, everything everything that's happened that brought me to this point. But for me, it's mostly about like living in the moment. That's what I really try to do. Yes, and yeah. and and just I mean, kind of in a interesting way because I did once go to Tucson, Arizona, and um, and even went to that what was standing on the corner. Just to you know, I'm, a, I'm a, I was a bit of a tourist, wasn't I? Uh, <laughs> 
Well, you have to, you know, when, you know, when we used to have that kind of famous holiday where you'd go to Vegas for three days, then get a car and then go and drive around national parks. I mean, what was Tucson like, you know, as a place to grow up in? Hmm. I'll tell you a little bit more about that. Um, I, David, I'd like to plug in my headphones. Uh, I guess you'll be editing this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, people love all of it. But um, no, do plug on your headphones. They're probably not the ones you Yeah, I you want have. to plug in my headphones, but I and hopefully it'll just go, but I might have to do a, a computer setting. Hold on, let's see what happens. Okay. I know after our Zoom experience, you, one never knows. But Oh, um, perfect. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Uh, great. I can't hear myself, ironically, but I can definitely hear you. Oh, and that's okay. good because I wasn't hearing enough of you. So now I do. Oh, that's nice. That's what my fans tell me. Anyway. Um, yeah. So t- does, you know, Tucson, it's it's probably quite a dust bowl at some for a few months of the year or probably more than that. But yeah. But what was it like growing up in Tucson? Well, in the very early years, it was uh, it was mostly about me running around barefoot in the, in the hot, hot sand, uh, walking a couple blocks down to the YMCA to go swimming in summer. And, uh, again, completely barefoot the entire summer. I had calluses on my feet. I could have walked over hot coals. I mean, the hot asphalt anyway. I mean, it was, it was a hundred degrees Fahrenheit, you know, like every other day in uh in in arizona in tucson uh, i had the thickest calluses they were like platform calluses you know uh speaking of glam they were like platform shoes platform calluses um okay <laughs> thank yes. you i was trying to be funny uh anyway and uh you know riding my bike around and you know i one of my one of the greatest memories, and you can pretty much ask anybody who grew up in Tucson, and they might they probably tell you the same thing. There are these creosote bushes, and uh, right before it's going to rain, you can smell the creosote, and it smells like asphalt. It smells it smells like it smells oily, you know, like petroleum. Yes. And uh, it was a fantastic thing. Right before it rained, which was rarely, the you could smell these bushes, and it was the most amazing thing. It's a smell that will never leave my my mind. Mm. In fact, I think it's embedded in my soul and my DNA. And uh, yeah, so there's that kind of stuff. And um, then when I got into my teens, suddenly I'm playing in a punk rock cover band. We're covering Wire, we're covering Talking Heads, The Ramones, Stranglers, and uh, this is all around 1976, maybe, yeah, I think around 76, so I was like 15. And were you playing, were you playing kind of keyboards at that stage? Yeah, yeah, I was playing, I was playing an old Fender Contempo organ, and uh, yeah, we were just having a great time, We we were smoking too much weed, and and drinking definitely too much. Mm. Uh, but it was just a, it was a damn good time. And there was a lot of camaraderie and <clears throat> except for the hippies, you know, I mean, the hippies and, and the, and the cowboys, they were like, what the fuck is going on? The cowboys <laughs> actually, the cowboys actually gave less of a shit. The hippies were more like, um, 
And there were actually, there were like literal brawls between the punks and the cowboy, uh, punks and the, and the hippies, you know. So was that kind of like Grateful Dead fans who was, or Little Feet fans who was sort of, or Leonard Skinner fans? I mean, who was? Yeah, yeah, you know, rather, I mean, the bottom line is we were all hippies because everybody's just smoking weed, you know, all day, every day. And uh, so we were all just a bunch of hippies. We just couldn't agree on what music to listen to. Um, but rather, you know, the, the hippies, I would say they were more like into hard rock and stuff like that, you know. Right. 70s. I mean, the, the Grateful Dead fans, they didn't want to fight, you know. They didn't care. They didn't give a shit about that. Um, but for some reason, the hard rockers, the hard rock hippies, you know, took issue with us, you know. Yeah. The real hippies, the real hippies, we were we were quite all right with, you know, that was not a problem. Um, how, how did you sort of, um, I mean, it's kind of different in America to the to UK in the sense of, you know, if something hits in the UK, you know, it can whiz around the country because it's tiny, isn't it? Let's face it, the United Kingdom is, is a small place compared to America. So, you know, punk can sort of happen quite quickly. I say that I come from the countryside. I mean, punk didn't creep up to East Anglia for very a very long time. Whereas, But you're in Tucson. So, you know, it's a long way from CBGBs and the Maxis Kansas City and eventually the Mud Club and all that kind of scene. And, you know, you're right down south, aren't you? I guess you've got L.A., though, haven't you? Quite close. Yeah, you know, I think it was, um, there was um, a couple beautiful coincidences that happened. Um, There were a couple folks uh, in our circle, older than us, who were paying more attention. And uh, it so happens that they, they each own their own record. So we had suddenly we had a source and we had we had people who could advise us, you know, it's like <clears throat> uh, the biggest influence is probably the record room, which is a very small privately owned uh, record store owned by two uh, owned by a couple on Fourth Avenue, like the hippie street where you can buy everything from Indian jewelry to uh, pop paraphernalia. And then there was this record store, the record room, uh, owned by Richard Ramon, <laughs> Richard Ramon, and uh, Joanne, Joanne Tamez, who recently passed away, unfortunately. Wow. And they really, kind of like our, our punk parents, you know, they took care of us and they turned us on to the good shit. And and then there was another. This is this is a crazy anomaly. Um, further away from there, in a big mall, there was another shop. It was a I think it was a chain. I can't remember from what chain. It could have been you know something like a HMV, something mm. like that. And there were a couple of guys that worked there, and they had one section of imports. And they import, it was like high-end stuff. It was a little more high-end. And it was like the best of the best. And I I was working as a dishwasher at the time. And I saved all my money. I was still living with my mom at that time. So I didn't have to pay rent. So I saved my money. 
and uh, every time I got paid, I would go directly to the uh, Tucson Mall and go to their shop and and just dig through their crates, you know, the imports. Sometimes I I'd ask for advice, but other times uh, I'd just buy a record based on how the cover looked. And one particular example was uh, Live at the Witch Trials by The Fall. Right. And, and I got that record. I brought it home. I was so excited. Maybe somebody said, oh, yeah, you might want to, you should check this out. I brought it home, put it on my, you know, turntable. And I thought to myself, this is the worst shit I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> I, I literally hated it. I just wasted however much money I spent on that thing, you know. And uh, <clears throat> then, I, then the next day, I'm like, okay, all right, let's give it another listen, you know. Put it on. I'm like, my God, this is terrible music. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Okay, so I don't know. I don't know how long I waited before I heard it a third time. It probably wasn't that long. Maybe a few days later. And I listened again for the third time and I got it. I, I understood what was happening and it, it's still one of my favorite records to this day, you know? So, uh, yeah. So the fall, uh, fantastic favorite groups. Uh, but my God, who else did I discover? Um, Per Ubu at the time. Um, they turned our heads out, you know, the Sex Pistols, that record got played till the grooves were, were gone. Um, then we were hearing a lot of L.A. bands like the Dickies and X and uh, I don't know, uh, the Weirdos. Um, I I almost slipped into German. I almost said alles möglich. <laughs> everything possible that's very cool that's very cool but yes so this is kind of like the turn of the decade wasn't it you were sort of getting this kind of i I wouldn't say it was the kind of um post-punk bands but it was definitely uh, you know the 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 punk scene had definitely been and virtually gone by then hadn't it from 75 to to 78 it was pretty well over by then then you just got all the kind of i i beg to differ david i beg to differ i i think that was a that was a hotbed, honestly, because uh, <clears throat> whatever bands you might have considered to uh, have set the fire, um, you know, the sparks of punk. I mean, whatever you might consider those bands to be, I mean, it it started a it started a, a wildfire, you know. I mean. <clears throat> I didn't even get into the Canadian bands that we ended up playing with, like DOA and the Subhumans. And uh, no, no. I mean, come on. I didn't even move to L.A. until 1979. No, 1980, 81. And punk was still happening there, okay? Mm. A different version, okay? It was it was evolving. But, I mean, to say it was over by 79, oh, I don't know, really? <laughs> Well, that's about. I did. I did do a few. In, you know, I've done quite a lot of these interviews. But there was one particular band who started probably seventy five, seventy six, called Eater, and they were on the album uh, Live at the Roxy. And 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 the guy, I think I can't. I can't remember his name now. I'd have to look it up. But um, he said that for him, 
his heart used to sink when he saw the audience and they were all dressed up as kind of Sid Vicious kind of lookalikes and they had the gear and he thought and he was saying he just felt like actually that's not what punk was about you know having the uniform and having to have that you know the Sid Vicious look so I suppose that's what I mean by sometimes you know the bands that started to appear after um you know the initial kind of moment and I suppose you would have got that in any scene really whether it was kind of rock or psychedelic rock you know some of it was great and then people jump on the bandwagon don't they and then you're thinking perhaps this isn't quite happening you know perhaps this is kind of time to move on or all sort of change you know change the groove because because I suppose when you know as this guy I think his name now is Andy Blade from Eater you know he just said it was just a bit disappointing when you just went god punk has now got a uniform and we all have to look like this and uh, pretend yeah yeah I, I get that on one hand I get that on one hand but uh it certainly wasn't the case in Los Angeles in 1980 81 it was not I mean and you had those people with you know trying to get their hair as spiked up as possible um but you also had long hairs in there. You had it was completely mixed. It was a very diverse audience. It was a very diverse audience. Even even at the Germs, I got to see the Germs once, you know. And uh, my God, that show was fucking amazing. And it wasn't all about how you looked. You know what I mean? Certainly, I think that did happen at one point. I mean, there's always there's always going to be a an aesthetic connected with whatever genre of of music. You know, it is it's simply that way. But at that time, it it had not happened yet, not to the extreme. Yes, but I suppose no. I suppose it, you know there were te- there were bands. I suppose Black Flag with Henry Rollins started to bring in a very macho hardcore quality that you know it was going to attract a certain person and and. It, you know, you'd have to have a, be a, a certain type to want to go and see one of those shows. Yes, yeah, you're right about that. Actually, I saw them, I didn't see them too often, but um, I actually somehow became friends with a couple members of that band, and um, or not friends, but, you know, closer acquaintances. Um, but for instance, I saw Fear many times in a in a small bar on Hollywood Boulevard. Raji's, I think they're on Hollywood Boulevard. <laughs> Was it Sunset? It's been so long. Uh, and Fear also had that kind of macho, you know, presentation. But they had a sense of humor. You know, it's like they didn't take themselves too seriously. When they got on stage, they kicked ass and they played as good or better than any band up there but but they didn't take themselves too seriously and you met them when you met them off stage they were just pretty funny cool guys lee ving was was a sweetheart you know the singer for fear yeah yeah so yeah i don't know it was just a great time to be there and and i don't know uh i would not call i i could i can't agree that in nineteen, over definitely not. <laughs> no, that's fine. But then, kind of, you know, as as we know, sort of um, seventy nine in this country, Thatcher gets in. Then you have Reagan. Then you have this kind of great 
you know, pushed to the right again. And we have the, in the UK, we have the, the Falklands War and then we had the miners' strike and, you know, and then kind of 83 time, there was this kind of change again to this world that is kind of what I refer to as indie pop with bands like the Smiths had come along and then you had all these kind of more of a jingly jangly quality and, you know, obviously Morrissey was there who was quite a figurehead at the time. And yeah. um, there was definitely a new, a new chapter at that stage. And just before that, we'd had people like Julian Cope and Simple Minds and you too. So how did you, you know, wh where was your sort of musical direction in the sort of that early 80s to mid 80s period? <clears throat> Oh my gosh. Um, I was always exploring so much music um, at the same time, whether it was country or dip or funk. Um, so I was just taking it all in. I was taking it all in. And I wasn't, you know, I didn't identify with one particular genre. I just wanted to hear good music. I wanted to hear music I'd never heard before. And uh, so the, the genre was much less important to me. Um, I, I, I was listening to Brian Eno. I was listening to Bowie. By the way, I, we kind of jumped ahead, but Bowie uh, is, uh, was definitely one of my biggest influencers. And a friend sent me a quote from a Bowie song the other day. <clears throat> and he said, guess the song, or he, I, I forget how he phrased it. And of course, I, I nailed it right away. It was like f the song Five Years. Right. And um, and then I, I wrote him, I, or I didn't write him actually, but I wanted to write him. I said, I think you could do this with any song from any Bowie record from Hunky Dory to Lodger, and I would be able to name the song. Do you right. see what I'm saying? That's how dedicated I was. Oh my God, I heard those songs over and over and over. So I am a massive Bowie fan, massive. So so if I mentioned the words, they move like tigers on Vaseline, you would go, yes, I know that one. I do, hold on, give me a second. <laughs> Um, well, the bitter comes up on a, on a spiders from Mars. They um, move like tigers on Vaseline. God, I do love that line so much. And, um, I know it's hang on to yourself. Thank you. Hang on to yourself. Well, the bitter comes up better on a stolen guitar. Yes. <laughs> well, I, I was very young when I listened to that and I kind of thought they move like tigers on Vaseline. That's kind of quite extraordinary vision, really. And, um, it is. It's kind of sexy, too. I mean, because, well, anything, you know, it, anything with Vaseline is like instantly sexy. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yes, we love we love lubricants here. Um, I'd, yes. I'd like a glass of champagne. And could you just like rub the stem with Vaseline? Thank you. <laughs> yes, I know. So that's uh, that was one of my classics, so, you know. And um, yeah, there, there's the obvious one. Still don't know what I'm waiting for. And time was running wild. A million dead dead end streets. Oh, that's uh, it's safe in the city. Is it that one? No, it's changes. Ah, okay. Oh yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's easy to cross reference. It is so actually. You put me to the test. You, you put me to the test. That's okay. I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready. 
Still don't know what I'm waiting for. Yes, it's always a classic, isn't it? David Bowie. Oh, so that was the opening line. That's a fucking opening line. Yeah, yeah. I know, that's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. Well, luckily, like I said, when I was growing up, you know, and you started watching Top of the Pops, you know, it was kind of glam and, you know, most of them were, you know, were okay. You know, I mean, you, know, you don't want to knock it too much. But then seeing Space Oddity, and I bought the single, which is kind of a big thing when, you know, you have to save up your pennies, literally, then get enough and go, right, I want to buy the single, Space Oddity. And it had to change it. And the B-side was Changes and Velvet Goldmine. And I thought B-sides were amazing. I thought it went downhill ever since. But mm. it was a good one, really. And then I got, you know, Changes one. And luckily, David Bowie is my first love and you know yeah. and he stayed with me all my life until yeah. black star which was quite an extraordinary moment so um yeah it's quite something really yes so then you were that's still- great that's great hold on i just had to say i have to interject um what's i gonna say ah uh, i think this is important which you may or may not know because you guys had like top of the pops and then you had like old gray whistle tests and you had you know, these uh, amazing television shows that we did not really have at the time. Later, we had uh, Don Kirshner's uh, rock concert, and we had, uh, I don't know what else we had. We had Soul Train, but we did not have anything like what you guys had bringing this music visually and, uh, and of course, with the audio to us. In the U.S., there was nothing like that. Yeah, there was nothing. We didn't have anything like that, so we had to. It was very underground. It was more like word of mouth. You know, it's like, hey, check this record out. You know, it's kind of like black market stuff. It was, you know, we really had to dig deep to find it ourselves. You know, well, I suppose the U.K. You know, we had these kind of gatekeepers again. You know, the U.K. being very tiny but quite busy, and we had you know like three weekly music papers like the NME, Melody Maker Sounds. Then we had, you know, the D, you know, a couple of DJs like John Peel and then eventually Andy Kershaw, Whisper and Bob Harris. And, you know, they, they were just very, you know, that was the kind of go-to place, you know. And, and, and I every, know, and you guys are so lucky for that. And also every little town and city has had a sort of indie alternative night. And, you know, that was often on a Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday. But it was just good, you know, it just was... Um, it was just a good thing. So it was, you know, we were just kind of, you know, I mean, you take it all for granted at the time, but now you look back and think, wow, that was kind of a golden period, really, wasn't it? So when you, you know, as I was, as we were trucking through that early period, when did you start to become aware of, you know, green on red? Oh, my. So that, again, that's more a situation that <clears throat> where... We're in this small town of Tucson, Arizona, and uh, suddenly people are, you know, I'm now I'm playing in this uh, punk rock cover band. Then this this guy Dan Stewart starts writing songs, and um, and he's a friend of a friend. <clears throat> he's a friend of a friend, and and that's like, hey, you want to play music with us? I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah just like that you know it's like it's like hey you want to you want to move into our house i'm like okay <laughs> you know it, it, there wasn't a lot of thought involved you know it's more like just meet play the music and see what happens and it was good and it was funny and fun and uh, we were like-minded and uh 
we were just all exploring, you know, it was all, it was all just blossoming at that time. There was no, nobody really, I don't know. I certainly had no agenda, no musical agenda at that time. I just wanted to play music and have fun. And, uh, yeah, suddenly I'm meeting Dan, I'm meeting Jack. Then they bring, uh, uh, Van Christian into the mix to play drums and it was all pretty, uh, very spontaneous, just spontaneous. Yes. And I mean, yeah. you quickly, I mean, got yourself quite, you know, on the scene and quite a good reputation, you know, with, with your first EP, wasn't it called Two Bibles? Yeah, actually. Yeah. That, that got the attention of Steve Wynn. And, uh, and that's when we made the, uh, the first eponymous, um, record, uh, which was, uh, the, uh, the first down there record, the first down there recording, um, green on red yes. yeah, down there. And Basically, two Bibles. I mean, it was like uh, 500 copies, self-pressed. The the artwork literally came out of a dumpster. <laughs> Jack Watterson was digging around in a dumpster, and he's like, hey, I think I found the art for our record. And we're like, yeah, that's cool. And sure enough, that's uh, that's what we took, you know. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was very arty of you, really, wasn't it? <laughs> And had you started sort of playing, you know, further afield than Tucson at this stage? Was Were you sort of starting to um, gather sort of... I mean, how does the scene work in America? You know, like in the UK, like I said, it's very straightforward. You get a transit van, you just drive around cities, towns. You know, you probably get back at four in the morning, unload. But how does it sort of function in, in the sort of... in the USA? Well, when we lived in Tucson, we never toured in the u.s we would go to play um we went up to we played in phoenix arizona where the meat puppets are from um did we were we going to did we go to vancouver at that time i'm trying to remember i don't think we went to vancouver before we moved to la you know i have time with uh, i have a problem with timelines yes um, but, um, uh, it's, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of places to play, you know, it's like Tucson, we would play the local place and then get back late and drink and party and, uh, wake up and assess the disaster. Um, no, touring's the same everywhere. Yes. And then, well, we and didn't really we didn't really start touring until we got to LA and became green on red, right? And then it started to sort of happen for you because obviously you know, I think in this country, you know, it doesn't take much for sort of an excitement to happen. And I think it was when you brought out the second album, wasn't it? Gas food lodging, which was kind of you know sort of the moment that things start to really happen, doesn't it? But before then, you had Gravity Talks. Well, Gravity Talks was the first record on Slash Records. That kind of put us on the map. That definitely got us some recognition, without a doubt. I mean, that was uh, the first big label 
record that we did under the name Green on Red, yeah, the first big label record. Yes. Um, Gravity Talks definitely put us on the map, without a doubt. Gas Food Lodging, and then it just kind of built up incrementally, but it was really incrementally. You know, there was no massive breakthrough. I think uh, the biggest thing that happened was once we signed to Phonogram for uh, No Free Lunch. Right. There you go. No Free Lunch. That's, yeah, that's, that was the kind of, that was the 85 kind of release, wasn't it? And I think that was, in this country, I think it was Andy Kershaw who was particularly keen and also, um, yeah, Whisper and Bob Harris. I don't think John Peel sort of took to the band so much, did he, in this country? No, I don't think so, but Andy was definitely on our side. Yes, absolutely. And also, kind of a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to a particular comedian we've got in this country called Stuart Lee, who's recently been sort of... He did a film for the Nightingales, Robert Lloyd and the Nightingales, called King Rocker, and he was playing, um, you know, like he, he'd done two shows on this radio station, one on the 80s and one on the very early 90s, and he and he talks about Green on Red playing at Glastonbury Festival and seeing you there. Can you remember much about that occasion? <laughs> well, I remember I was ankle deep in mud, but that's no surprise to anybody. Yes. Um, the funny thing is I played a couple years ago in uh, London at the Slaughtered Lamb, and my friend from Oxted was promoting it, and... Uh, Personally, so he's like looking at the ticket sales and he said, um, oh, no, how did this unfold? I'm trying to remember. Um, Stuart Lee has his own website where he mentions bands and events that he likes. Right. And Dom, my friend, woke up that morning or the day before and he said, Chris, you're not going to believe this. Stuart Lee basically did a pick on your show. He said, people got to see your show. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> and, uh, and sure enough, you know, I, I looked at the, he was saying very nice things, you know, about that he was following my personal career, knew me from green on red, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and then the next day he saw that somebody had purchased tickets under the name Stuart Lee. So I was like, you're kidding me. And my friend was freaking out because he's the biggest fan of Stuart Lee. Yeah? Yes. And sure enough, Stuart Lee showed up and I had a, a short chat with him. I thanked him for coming and he said, yeah, I've been following you for a long time. I'm a big fan of you. And I was just uh, flabbergasted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was so sweet. I was I was blown away and I thought that was so... Yeah, I mean, whatever, kind or whatever. But that was just so cool to have this connection with such... He's He himself is an awesome artist and an amazing comedian. And uh, yeah, it was really... I was very flattered. Nice. That is very nice. Because yeah. I think you played Glastonbury probably in the mid-80s, hadn't you? 85, I believe, um, which was kind of very much your the early years really weren't you so you must have got quite used to the kind of the the uk festy scene and i think that was the same year that you had people like echo and the bunny men and john martin playing and uh, i think billy bragg was at every every festival at that stage and the triffids as well i just noticed were, were playing that ah, time yeah. so um yeah yeah, yeah. 
I remember meeting Billy Bragg, and uh, we actually played more shows together. That was around the time. Ah, no, I think that was shortly before we did some a tour with Steve Earle and his band. Right. I'm slightly jumping ahead here, but when Stuart, just going back to Stuart Lee with his great radio show, he played uh, your cover of the, the Carpenters, Rainy Days and Mondays. Oh, no, no, no. I did, I did not cover that. I didn't cover that. But Green on Red? Ah, maybe after I left the band. Right. That was that it. That could be. That could be, yeah. So did you play Glastonbury in the early 90s by all... Or was the, it band, just... the band kind of disbanded around, uh, the band disbanded after uh, Killer Inside Me. Right. Which is around 85. I've got you, yes. So you were there, because one thing I've noticed doing this, this show is that most bands have a five-year narrative, you know, and in the UK, you know, you have that sort of 12 months of um, the happy honeymoon period, and then you have the first single and the first album, and and you kind of probably know the narrative really well, don't you? And then you have the tricky second album or sometimes the tricky third album. And then by five years, to quote David Bowie, most people have just had enough. So what was it like after you did um, Gas Food and Lodgings? Did you do, were you on the sort of the third album? Well, I have to tell you, David, um, uh we never viewed our career in terms of a career. Everything that happened was pure happenstance, okay? It was luck, and we were just... I mean, Dan might have had a little more involvement, but we were just along for the ride. We did not have a plan. We did not have management. No. We were just winging it. We had no fucking idea, okay? And, uh, and I know the pop scene... And the pop uh, system was more in place in the UK. Uh, granted, it was in place in the US, but on an entirely different level. Because if you compare the UK to the US, you know, there is no comparison. You know, so it was easy, easier, I, I, I think, to sort of create a scene and, 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 and a sensation. And it was much more important in the UK and it was and it functioned much better than it did for better or worse in the USA. You see what I'm saying? Yes. We had no fucking plan. <laughs> no, no, we were just winging it. We we're just winging it. It's like, you know, we're just fucking are you kidding me? Are we thinking about uh, that was the last thing on our mind. Okay, granted, you know, it all came down to what songs do we have? Who's going to produce it? Where are we going to record it? It was all, it was mostly about logistics, you know? It was no, there was no concept about um, <clears throat> uh, how are we going to make this better or not better? Or, you know, how are we going to top ourselves or, or who are we now? <clears throat> now, having said that, uh, some people stepped in and with some ideas, like they, oh my God, you got to see this one photo where they, put us in makeup and shit and tried to make us look like a new romantic band. And I'll tell you as much as I hate that picture, I don't hate it, but as much as I dislike it, Dan despises it 10 times more because it was just somebody trying to make us into something that we weren't. You know what I mean? Yes. 
No, and uh, and it, and that never worked for us. We we just tried to be authentic. We just tried to do our thing. We literally did not have a clue. And I I don't think Dan would beg to differ. You know, I was just going along for the ride. I just wanted to learn the songs, play the songs, do the best performance I could. I I there was nothing going on. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like, you know. It's like, I'm going to look for, you know, nobody told me you got to dress like this or dress like that. I was just looking for my clothes in a fucking thrift shop. Uh, I was, I was married. I already had two fucking young children. I'm, I'm working two jobs. I'm trying to figure out what the fuck is going on. I'm just fucking living my life. And along the way, green on red was happening. That's kind of how it was for me. Yes. Well, absolutely. I'm not even, I'm not even kidding. That's just the way it was. And uh, and it's cool, and I'm happy about how it all went down. I am. Yes. So when you when you got to the, uh, I suppose it was the third album, wasn't it? Really, the the one which was you mentioned, the Killer Inside. That was the one with you had Chuck Prophet in as well at the same at that time, didn't you? Well, actually, Chuck joined already for um, Gravity Talks. Right. I've got you. Did you? When you were doing the Killer Inside, did you sort of feel that that was going to be the last album you would you would do with Green on Red? No, not at all, not at all. Um, in fact, that was probably the most hopeful time of my life uh, regarding that band because it, it had simply evolved in such a good way, in such an organic way. And I thought, oh, yeah, this is cool. This is going to go somewhere, you know? And... Um, <clears throat> And then we we were getting ready for the tour, and uh, we were next thing we know we're in London. We're auditioning uh, singers to go on tour with us, and we auditioned uh, many singers. And one of the singers was uh, this uh, black American woman. Victoria, I think, if I'm not mistaken, her name is, uh, funny enough, Victoria Williams. Right. No. And she was kind of a, she's a big woman, you know, and and she had a booming voice. Everything about her was big, you know, there was nothing small about her, okay? And, uh, <clears throat> you know, hold on, hold on. Uh, so we got her, we're like... Okay, she's definitely in. She's definitely the one. We but we needed one more to sing harmonies. So then this petite uh, black woman, she was uh, British. I don't know. Um, yeah. Anyway, she, British mix. I. I okay. Whatever. Mm. She was rather from London, whereas the other one was from America. Yes. And uh, she looked like Sade, like a like a petite version of Sade. Well, Sade's anyway pretty petite. Mm-hmm. And she had a really sweet voice, and they worked great together, these two voices. Um, but like I say, uh, so suddenly now we're auditioning two singers, so we go on the road. Now we have a tour van, a, a tour bus, which we never toured with a, an actual tour bus. Um, where we slept in the bus and that kind of thing, and uh, and it was a great tour, but it was it was a difficult tour. It was a challenging tour, and especially for Dan, because I think he felt the pressure at that time. Then, 
from the label. Whereas again, I was more just on the sidelines. I felt more like a player than, than an actual, I don't know, game changer, logistic maker. Um, and at the, by the end of that tour, Dan kind of lost his mind, which is why that last show in London got canceled. Um, he just couldn't take it anymore. And at the end of that tour, uh, Dan said to us, he's like, guys, I need a break. I'll let you know when I'm ready to, uh, to do something again. He's like, I need time off. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, that's fine. That's fine. Well, I don't, I don't know how long it was. It was maybe half a year later. Suddenly somebody comes to me and they say, oh, wow, that's so cool. You're making another Green on Red record. I said, what are you talking about? Yeah, I heard you guys are recording. I said, where? In Memphis. I said, I have not heard anything about this. So that's kind of when Green on Red Part 2 happened, is when uh, Dan and Chuck went to Memphis to record with Jim Dickinson and uh, make uh, start making the next series of records without uh, the original bass player, drummer, or keyboard player. <laughs> Yes, that was. Um, did you have a conversation at that stage in in some? <laughs> no, there was no conversation at that stage. But I have to tell you, at this point, it's all water under the bridge, and yeah, sure. And, I mean, well, I mean, not sure, not exactly, but uh, I mean, it's it's not a given that that it would be okay, but it happens to be okay between Dan and I, and and Jack Watterson. But it it fucking hurt. It 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 did hurt at that time. But um, I have to say, I can also be thankful that that happened because um, if that had not have happened, then I probably would not have had my own uh, solo career, for better or worse. Yes. And did you, with that that kind of moment, you know, you, you said you'd been working several jobs to keep things going because you, you know, got married and had got two children. So did it take a while to pick yourself up again and sort of discover your own songwriting and kind of, I suppose, leadership, really? Well, it had all been sort of happening uh, parallel, I guess. I'd been exploring my own songwriting, and I guess the timing was just good because at that time I had enough songs to, uh, to actually make a record. Um... And that ended up coming out on Pat Thomas's Heyday Records in San Francisco. Uh, yeah, again, it all just happened very organically. You know, there wasn't a lot of thought involved because I was too busy uh, dealing with actual life logistics and being less concerned with, you know, what's going to happen with my musical career. Yes, I know. Which, is, which might have something to do with where I'm at now, which is penniless and pathetic <laughs> oh no don't say that so was it was your first solo album was this the one called six string soap soapbox no 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 that one came out later um the first one is uh actually eponymous it's just chris kakavis uh or it's chris kakavis in junkyard love yes and again released uh, by pat thomas the lovely pat thomas on heyday records 
And after that, I put out Good Times. Uh, that was around 87. No, no, that was more like 89. And then the third record was Pale Blonde Hill, which is uh, the record that I sold the most copies of, mostly in Germany, because um, we had a, in a, a German distributor, and, and they did me well. Yes. Um, yeah. And you managed, I mean, in, interestingly enough, because I sort of was looking at your Bandcamp page as well as your other bits and pieces, you have actually been very prolific on, on recording. So was this, you know, with putting together a solo career and obviously getting dates, were you quite sort of, um, was this something that was a bit of a surprise when you started finding yourself in that position? Hmm, um... I don't know if I could say I was surprised. I was, I was excited that I could do it. And, and I was really happy that I found, uh, amazing musicians that would play with me. Um, to this day, I, I, I feel like I've, I've always had the best possible musicians in my band. Um, <clears throat> No, I'm I'm just really pleased. Uh, I'm really pleased with my musical legacy from Green on Red uh, up until this moment. Yes. Uh, but again, you know, there wasn't a lot of thought that went into it. I mean, I don't. I I I'm not the kind of guy who like charts things out. You know, I I don't make a chart. But I try to stay on course. Does that make sense? Yes. Well, and I guess as careers go, being a musician is probably the hardest one in the book, isn't it? I suppose. I mean, I think I know there are a lot of people who contemplate and, and plan, you know, the next step. Um, I, I won't do that until I get inspired, until I really, really feel that I might have something to offer um or or in in recent examples you know that i i do it out of necessity um for two reasons uh during this pandemic um which i'm happy to not talk about <laughs> spe specifically the pandemic okay go on yes uh, no. um <clears throat> it was there was a necessity for money and there was also a necessity for me to be creative, which is why I, I hunkered down and I said, I'm going to make a record. I'm going to do a home recording. I'm going to use electronic beats. I'm going to use everything that I have here in my bedroom, you know, and I'm going to try and make the best possible record. And I made the record Burn the Maps. And I'm, it's uh, only available on Bandcamp as a digital download. And I'm I'm very pleased with it. Um, I think it could be better, maybe, uh, and it could be, I don't know, possibly mixed better. But but you know, it's like I'm a fan of lo-fi, and if I listen to bands like, have you ever heard East River Pipe? Yes, on Sarah Records. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there we go. So there's some there's a joy for me about this intimacy. Uh, of of this lo-fi production, you know, that's kind of raw, and it and it is what it is. You get it. It's almost it's like a Polaroid, you know. 
it's maybe not the best quality, but there's something charming about it. And uh, I feel like um, that's what this record is for me. It's a very charming record. It also is very relevant to the time that it was, it was created. And for me, it's a, it's a very legitimate uh, release. And, but again, now, now it's out. And once I record it and release it, then that's that. And now I have to move on to the next thing, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Because, because yeah. in your time though, just to, to clarify, but you also worked occasionally with Giant Sand and also Dream Syndicate. Is that yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Giant Sand happened when I was living in L.A. Um, that's when I I knew Hal from Tucson, of course. And then we both ended up in Los Angeles. And that's where we met again. And I started playing uh, playing with his band, with Giant Sand. And that was... I was talking to somebody recently about that, that... Um, it was such an amazing time. I don't know if I was ever so alive musically as I was when I was playing with Giant Sand. Yeah. Because uh, How Gale was so inspirational and uh, and the music was so otherworldly, you know? And... Uh, I, I honestly never felt more alive playing music than when I played with Giant Sand. Yes. God, that's yeah. a, I mean, it's kind of amazing that Tucson's got so many incredible bands in one sort of location. But then on saying that, it's probably not that amazing, is it? But yes. But I come from Norwich. You know, we don't have a lot of amazing bands in this area. You know, it was, mm. it, we have a lot of bands coming through and, you know, we get to see them. But, you know, it doesn't have a great musical legacy. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, uh, Tucson, I can't remember. I don't know what the population was at that time. I think it's around, what is it, three quarter of a million by now? Maybe, I think it was around half a million when I was there. Yeah. I could, I should Google it because I don't know right now. <laughs> I know. So was it, was it, you know, is it the case, you know, because it must be quite tricky, you know, because you've worked obviously with Dan and then you worked with Giant Sand, then you worked with Steve Wynn. Did you... I mean, sort of being having that lifestyle, how does that, how do you manage to sort of juggle and cope with that when you're sort of, because you obviously, you know, this was kind of, it was only about five years ago you were with Dream Syndicate? Well, actually, um, uh, I've always had, uh, I've always dabbled with Dream Syndicate. I've played on this or that record since they've been recording. And only in the last years has the uh, <clears throat> collaboration become a little bit more concrete. Um, now I'm I'm the official fifth member of Dream Syndicate. My God! You're yeah, like, yeah, and, and I and I I, I co-produced uh, the last couple records, and uh, you know now is when this. This Dream Syndicate thing, they're basically my band right now. That's my band. Um, unfortunately, I'm in Germany, <laughs> so it's challenging to to get there to record records, but it happened for the last uh, three records. Yes. And um, and I, I love these guys. I've known them all since the 80s. 
I've known Jason Victor since he started playing with Steve Wynn in the Miracle Three. So these guys, these guys are my brothers. You know, it's like I I've known them for decades, and now uh, I, I I'm an integral part of this band, and I love it. I love it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So so on that million dollar question, which I did ask you, which feels like ages ago now, how come you're in Germany? Right. So in 1994, I was on tour uh, for Pale Blonde Hell, and I met a woman. Uh, at the time, I was uh, still married with two kids. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so that all went wherever it went. Um, and I, I decided I wanted to be with this woman, this new woman that I met and, uh, things kind of, you know, exploded, got messy, but they all, it was also a beautiful time. Uh, and we were together for 26 years. Ironically, we separated last year, but Hey, 26 years is a pretty good run. Yes. And uh, and we have a son. He's 20 years old. He's studying in Freiburg, Germany. And, you know, life's OK. Life, life just takes twists and changes. You know, it's like um, I think there's a time to mourn and there's a time to not to mourn. And uh, this is not, nothing to be too grievous about, you know. No, my God. But yeah, do you yeah. but do you. Um, I mean, Tucson, Arizona is probably in the 90s with blue sky and desert landscape. How do you cope in, in being in such a different world? Well, I've been I've been in Germany 18 years now. And at first it was very exciting. I experienced my first winter, you know, because after I left Tucson, I was 18 years old when I left Tucson for Los Angeles. And... Uh, so basically, the first 40 years of my life, I only had sunshine, okay, with occasional rain. Yeah, yeah it's quiet. No, literally, literally. <clears throat> so now I'm experiencing snow. I'm shoveling snow. I'm, I'm uh, chopping wood for the fireplace. And uh, I have to say, I really like it. Uh, the funny thing is we can bring it back to green on red because the first time I came to Europe with green on red, I, I knew, and, and I, I told myself I will live here one day. I did not know where in Europe. I did not know it would be Germany. Um, but I knew for a fact that I wanted to live in Europe and here I am and I'm still enjoying it. That's fantastic. And, and yeah. I mean, but it does obviously create a certain kind of trickiness with your your the work the work life living balance doesn't it yeah i mean you know i'm i'm working with some folks over here and um um uh, you know in in terms of um touring and and stuff um it makes way more sense to tour with a band over here in Europe because in the U.S. you earn a fraction of what uh, European clubs will pay. No, it's absurd. It's absurd. And actually, England isn't so good either. I have to say England is probably... So it's like if the worst is USA, England is maybe just a slight notch above. 
Yes. But then, no, I'm not even kidding. But then the rest of Europe is like pretty okay. It's well, actually nice. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I know a few bands that I've interviewed who are still trying to keep it going, though that's been quite tricky for various reasons, as you can imagine. But they said yeah, that, yeah. you know, it's touring Europe, you know, basically doing 30 nights in 30 days, hitting Europe with great vigour and excitement that just, uh, you know, will give you some sort of income because and and they always mention it and i know lemmy from motorhead used to always mention it the german audience are just so good they'll all go and buy five cds and t-shirts and you think phew that's that's kind of kept us that's kept electricity bill paid for another year before we have to do it again i mean it kind of is it's painful when you're 60 or 70 doing that but you know it's the only way to to make it happen really so yes there's a lot more loyalty i do believe in europe Absolutely, and but the but there's loyalty, not only in terms of the audience, but like how the clubs treat you. I I, I don't know. We we played. I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. The last time Dream Syndicate played in um, in London, I think we where did we play at the Scala? Were you there? No. Ah, you should have been there. It was a really good show, but my God, that's like the old theater, right? Right. Oh, my God, what a shithole. <laughs> oh, my God, it's terrible. It's horrible. And nobody who works there is happy. It's a fucking nightmare. <laughs> the backstage room. The backstage room is as big as a shoebox. And, uh, oh, my God, it was horrible. Everybody hated it. We were so glad to to not to, to leave that club and I think we'll be so happy to never play there again. Excellent. Okay, having said that, having said that, the Lexington, you know the Lexington, right? Yes. Right. What do you think about the Lexington? Well, it's, it's as you know, I mean, all venues are a little bit hit and miss, but, you know, it's, it's adequate. Hold on. We love it. There you the go. Lexington was great. It's small. It was... You go upstairs, it's kind of cramped, but my God, the people are nice. They treat you right. The sound system looks like shit, but it fucking sounds amazing. And that's all we need. It's like you can see the difference between people who are uh, doing their job passionately and people who are just phoning it in. Yes, you know, is, we had yeah. such a great we had such a great time at the Lexington. We had two nights in a row there, and it was fantastic. Nice, we loved it. The Scala was like a nightmare. It was like horrible. Yes, this is not good, is it? So I don't know. I'm just ranting. I mean, I'm nobody cares about my opinion anyway. But okay, go on. <laughs> I mean, obviously, having the lockdown has been a bit of a difficult one. What What's the kind of What's your uh, kind of plan for the for the next year, twenty four months? You know, just to uh, I just wondered what what the kind of what you have on the agenda, both in your solo career, you know, touring, and also with Dream Syndicate. Yeah, that's a damn good question, David. Um, so I'm doing. I also make electronic music under another name, which is Chromo Valdez like my Skype name. Right. <clears throat> and and I have a, actually recorded my first full-length uh, Chromo Valdez record that I'm going to release hopefully soon. 
Um, just doing some final tweaks and blah, blah, blah. Yes. Um, I don't know. I've been writing songs in between. Uh, I decided that um, if I get enough songs to record a record that I want to go to Chris Ekman from The Walkabouts. Do you know him? Oh, I know The Walkabouts. I mean, I don't really know them, you know, the individual members, but yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Chris Ekman, anyway. You got to check him out. He's doing very relevant stuff. I I could go I could go on another half hour about everything that he's doing right now, which is amazing. Uh, he's just about to release a solo record, which I got to play keyboards on one track on. Yeah. And uh, anyway, he has he lives in Ljubljana, in Slovenia. Blimey. And. He, and he has his studio there. And I decided that when I get enough songs together, I'm going to meet with him and uh, we're going to make an actual studio record, which uh, has not seemed possible for me in this day and age. Cause uh, who's got the money to do a studio record and yeah. Yeah. But I'm pretty excited about that. So I'm inspired and motivated to actually write songs instead of, you know, just doing like beat oriented electronic music, which I also really enjoy. Yes, absolutely. So I'm kind of all I'm kind of all over the map. You know, I'm just I'm doing home recording. Actually, I was recording before uh, before we started this conversation tonight. Yes. And I may get back to it tonight. We'll see. I got to check on my goulash, too. I put a goulash in the oven a couple hours ago. As you do. As you do. Yeah, that's amazing. So, you know. Plan-wise, there's quite a lot of things you've got on the horizon. Yeah, you know, I'm just trying to keep the ball rolling, so to say, you know. And what, I mean, I'm not I'm not that optimistic that anything's really going to change in the next year, but I hope I'm proven wrong. You know, I hope somebody, I hope the world proves me wrong, but, yes. you know, I'm just trying to stay focused on, on surviving and, and being happy. Yes, know? well, that's the key to life, that... And keep them warm at nights, because frankly, it's a bit freezing in the UK at the moment. But when did you um, when did you sort of meet up with Dan again? You know, after the sort of sort of finding yourself no longer in the band, I just wondered, did you have a moment where you sort of bumped into each other or a phone call? Well, I'm trying to think. I mean, we had that reunion in 2006, a Green on Red reunion, and then. Uh, we recorded a Danny and Dusty record. So Dan Stewart, Steve Wynn, Stephen McCarthy, uh, Bob Roop, um, Johnny Hot on drums. Uh, when was that? That was maybe a couple years later. Yes. So we met a couple times after that. And then actually Dan and I did a, a duo tour where I basically supported Dan on his songs, you know. When he was doing solo stuff. Exactly. That was not too long ago. That was, hold on, that was uh, 2014, maybe? Uh, that was yeah. a couple of years, a couple of years ago. It seems uh, like yesterday, but now you realize it, it does. It, no, it really, it does seem like yesterday. And then you think, God, it's seven years. Yeah, I mean, did he explain kind of the reasons why the band, you know, he decided to do it? Or was it just, you just felt like there was no nothing to be gained from talking about it? Well, no, no, no. Um, Dan, I, I, I'll put it like this. He, he came clean. 
um, so to say. Um, if you want more details, you should rather ask him. Yes. But basically, he said he was he's overwhelmed, and he was getting advice from this person or that person about how to carry on, and he didn't really know what to do at the time. And and yeah, basically, he said he he does have regrets about it, you know. And that's enough. I mean, I don't want him to beat himself up for it, you know. That's not going to make me feel better about what happened. No, God. Uh, we, we talked about it. We talked about it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're, we're square, so to say, you know. Which is the ideal thing. And if you could have said something, I know this is a bit of a corny question, but if you could have said something to your 16, kind of 18-year-old self starting out, I mean, is there some advice or some little kind of word, word of wisdom or even two that you would have just said, actually, I would have just look out for this or do that? You know, I just wondered if it was, a, if it was anything that you thought, yeah, you'd have you know, wished you'd known. Hmm. Um... I think my the best advice I can give us in in the artistic realm is just be true to yourself and if you ever if you ever have a question about whether it's right or not if you think it's not right then it's not right cuz I I've been proven it's been proven to me over and over if I had that feeling where I thought nah this doesn't seem right whether it's about, I don't know, like uh, we can talk about the mix. Oh, the voice is too loud. I should really change that. And then you leave it like that. And you're like, fuck, I was right. I should have brought that voice down. You know, basically that's that's an oversimplification. Mm. But basically to say, if go with your gut feeling, you know. And if your intuition tells you it's not right, then it's probably not right. Sure. And in the same, and in the same, uh, in the same voice, uh, to say mm. if you feel it's right, then it's probably right. So go with it. Find yes. the flow. Catch the wave. Catch the wave. Well, I have to say, I've been playing the album that I've been playing quite a lot this today was the ruins, ruins your favorites. That's the one. Oh, okay, okay. Which is beautiful. Yeah, is it? I have to listen again. I have to listen to that one again. I mean, burn the maps. I definitely, you know, put more time and effort into ruin ruins. Your favorites was, it was a fun little project because it, it's me covering my own songs. Yeah. So it's kind of a, a fun, that's more of a, a concept record. Right. Uh, but I had a lot of fun doing it, unfortunately. And maybe, yeah, whatever, revealing too much. <laughs> um, when it came time to sing, I was just coming out of a cold so my voice was not really where I wanted it to be, you know. But I, I gave my best, and I'm I, in the end, I'm pretty content with it, you know. Yes, but yeah. burn, you you recommend burn burn the maps as your yeah, that's the one. And home recordings yeah. from from the Bandcamp releases, I I think that's or home recordings is also definitely worth a listen. Definitely worth a listen. Yeah. Yes. Well, no, they're, they're brilliant. Well, if anybody needs any of your music, and highly recommended. I mean, you know, it's fantastic. I've loved it. And I'm glad that, you know, Stuart Lee went and saw you live. That was quite nice. Like I said. Oh, my I, God. I, I loved it. He's such a uh, such a humble man. Such a humble man. Yeah. Yes. And such a fan. Yeah. Such a fan yeah, of the band. Yeah, yeah. 
Anyway, look, well, thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this. This has been really brilliant. And uh, I'm glad we got there in the end after our little Zoom hiccup. So, um, you know, you just have to you just have to roll with it, don't you, in life? Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, we put it to the test and we we've shown everybody we can survive this. We can do it. Yeah, we can change passwords just like that. <laughs> That's marvelous, isn't it? Okay, David, it was a pleasure. Um, we'll be chatting again soon. Yeah? yeah, definitely. Take care and keep in touch. And and I'll send you a link to this and uh, you can always use it if you want. Okay? Yeah, cool. And I look forward to meeting you in person. Yes. Well, hopefully you'll be in London soon. Okay. I, I look forward to it. Take David. care. Cheers. Yo, you too. Ciao. Bye-bye. There you go. I love leaving those last bits in because, frankly, they make me smile. Anyway, look, this is uh, well, a big thank you to Chris Kakavas from Green on Red and also, obviously, with lots of solo stuff going on as well. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me for some reason, which is obviously going to be nice, don't make it unpleasant, you can um, track it down on or track me down on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do The C86 Show. And also, all these have been archived and you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. Anyway, have a great week and stay safe.